Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I am a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our law firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We often think of January as being a time to recalibrate. We commit to getting physically fit or getting financially fit, don't we? But given what this country has experienced with the positively seismic shift that has been happening in the sexual harassment space, I thought that we would dedicate our first DNI podcast of the new year to exploring how business leaders may work on getting their workplaces culturally fit. With too many allegations of sexual misconduct having been launched against too many men to count in the past few months, sexual harassment has taken a stunning center stage placement. The fallout has been massive, and while the initial reports that surfaced were focused on Hollywood and the entertainment industry like Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein, the carnage is spilling far beyond La La Land. Within weeks after Weinstein, emboldened accusers came forward in a movement that has spared virtually no industry, from media, music, and sports to business, politics, and high-tech. We now hold our collective breaths as we awaken every day wondering, who's next? And while the fallout is far from over, we have an opportunity to take this moment in sexual harassment history and use it as a springboard to transform business culture. And to have that conversation, I have invited a very special guest, Jane Miller, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Gallup Organization. Jane is widely regarded as a thought leader in performance management, leadership, and organizational identity. The extraordinary 2016 Gallup report dedicated to women in America, work, and life well-lived is but one testament to this fact. Jane, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Cindy Ann, for inviting me to be a part of your dialogue on this very important and very hot topic. The topic of women and work has many tentacles, but once you add the topic of sexual harassment, it's a very complicated and very convoluted subject. As we venture through this topic, a quick caveat, I have a few data points to share, but I'm also going to weave in some very strong opinions as a woman who has been in management and leadership for most of my career. So I want to start first with the data that confirms what we're seeing and everything you've perfectly articulated. And that is when we look to the Gallup poll to see what Americans are thinking, we find that 69% of Americans think sexual harassment is a major problem. And that is up from 50% in 1998. And it's not just women who see this as a serious problem, it's men too. 73% of women and 66% of men see it as serious. As we launch into the whys behind this, I think we have to look first at society, then at workplaces, then at individual views. You know, whether we like it or not, we've become a very sex-driven society, from music to television to movies to how young adults today see sex very differently than older generations. 
And we know from years of leadership, engagement, and workplace culture that the leadership of the company sets the tone for what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. So many companies ask us how to transform their culture, and the first place to start is always with the leaders. The way leaders define, display, and communicate an organizational culture influences whether employees will exemplify those values with each other and with customers. Now, Jane, let me, let me interrupt you here so that we can unpack what some of those transformations are going to have to look like. Obviously, female leaders are important here, but so are men. For instance, how are we going to get men to message to other men that disrespectful or sexist attitudes will not be tolerated? I mean, how do we get men to discourage other men from perpetuating any bro culture, as it's known, that may exist? I think at the highest levels, we have to look at are leaders respectful, men or women? And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, I think. But we really need to get to the point where associates, employees can say, I am respected by my company leadership. And at that point, that means that men stand up for women, women stand up for men, but there is a human respect from person to person, regardless of what the topic is. So men have to be willing to take on their own guide. They have to oh, respect what is acceptable regarding banter or boy talk, as, as it's yes. known. And, 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 and these teachable moments can seem small, but they're really actually very significant. For instance, recent studies revealed that when men are talking with women, that women are interrupted 33% more often than when they are talking with men. And for any listeners out there in the legal field who may be interested, this includes female Supreme Court justices who are not only interrupted by their fellow justices, but by male counsel appearing before them during oral arguments. So at the leadership table, for instance, when a man tells another man who is man-interrupting to knock it off and let Diane finish her point, for instance, these are important first steps in resetting the tone for other men who are, are looking. Absolutely. You know, one of the things we find is that women are more engaged at work than men on every single attribute and question we have except for one, and that is my opinion seem to count. And I think what you've just described is one of the reasons why, because there's a feeling of I'm not being listened to, I'm not getting my point across, and it mm -hmm. comes back to just basic behaviors. So, Jane, what else can leaders start to do with respect to resetting this tone? Well, Cindy Ann, I think it's more imperative than ever that business leaders set the stage for the culture that they want to establish by setting a tone of zero tolerance for sexual harassment. We must hold very open, candid, transparent conversations on what defines sexual harassment in the workplace. And this is a really important point I want to call out because we need to say that what's gone on, whether it's Harvey Weinstein, whether it's potentially Matt Lauer, those are lewd, crude, and unfathomable. Those are absolutely wrong, and that cannot take place in workplaces or in life. So there's that that makes up some percent. We don't know what percent that is. But then there's also a significant range in what one person defines as uncomfortable 
to what another person may define as actually crossing the line, like those examples. So for some, it's a joke that can be taken as harassment. And yet for others, it might be a hug. And for others, it could be a question or a look. You know, on the other hand, some have very high tolerance for flirting and will push the limits, both men and women. So we have to teach others to pay attention to social cues and educate people that everyone's different and has varying levels of tolerance for what they may define as harassment. But then a company needs to draw a line in the sand and say, this is what crosses the line. This is what constitutes harassment, such as what we've seen in the media. Okay, Jane, I'm, I'm going to give voice to what I feel certain that some of our listeners are, are thinking about. Should all infractions along the continuum of objectionable conduct be treated equally? Because while there will be some behaviors that are death penalty infractions, there are arguably other behaviors that could be treated as coachable moments. And, and doing so without somehow minimizing an organization's commitment to cleaning cultural house, isn't there? I think you just hit on the trillion-dollar question, Cindy Ann. <laughs> this is exactly what companies have to do, because if someone feels it, it, it's worthy of a conversation, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's worthy of uh, someone getting terminated, for example. So we've really got to lay down the law of what is illegal and what is a business ethic, which may be not illegal but makes people feel uncomfortable at work, and then what is something where someone's just misinterpreted the person's intent? So we've really got to look at, you know, anywhere from three to five different phases or points on a spectrum relative to defining sexual harassment in the workplace. Good point. Now, Jane, as you of all people know, there is a great deal of research that demonstrates that most companies understand the definite financial benefits from a workplace culture that welcomes women. It's well accepted that gender diversity creates higher revenue and profit, right? So let me cut straight to the chase. Why is there still such a paucity of women in senior leadership roles and in so many industries? Well, you're right, Cindy Ann. As a matter of fact, this is such a given or no-brainer, the fact that the financial implications are greater when you have a gender-diverse team, that we didn't choose to discuss it blatantly because we just assume people know that the financial advantages are so significant when you have um, gender-diverse teams. And the research is literally everywhere. It's Gallup, it's McKinsey, it's Pew, it's Deloitte. We'll show time and time again that both the revenue and profit increases are exponential when you have gender-balanced teams. So we posed the question in the report, why aren't there more women leaders in for-profit businesses? We have lots of women who are doing tremendous things and in tremendous leadership positions, but where the most extreme shortage is really comes in for-profit and in the larger businesses, even more so than mid-size or small. So as I stated earlier, it's a deep, deep societal issue that goes beyond the workplace. And it ranges from religious to regional views and really to how well businesses are run. We have trends that date back to the 1950s that discuss everything from the best place to meet your future husband, um, alluding that that could be a workplace, it could be through friends, to should women work outside the home, to can women wear pants today? No joke, that was a question in the 1950s. And yet today we're still talking about that kids are a company's greatest competition. So what we know today is that globally, 70% of women want to work outside the home. However, once women start having children, 54% say they would prefer to stay home if they could. Now, that's a really controversial statement. I've had people call me out on it, but 
it is what it is. That's what our data shows time and time again. Now, that means if a business is creative and performance-based, they can help women work hard and still have flex in how and where and when they work, and men too, because what it does is it makes it better for men, it makes it better for women, and ultimately for families. And the most important point is the best-run businesses figure out how to recruit women into their employee ranks as well as how to develop and promote them to leaders. It makes companies better for all humans. So what is all of this going to take? Well, it takes really hard work, and it takes a clear recruiting strategy, a clear learning and development strategy. Maybe most importantly, it takes caring managers who think about the human in relation to the work. It takes individualized performance goals, a truly flexible work environment, all wrapped in a mission-rich environment to make it work for women and men. And until all companies are doing this, we will fail to have enough women in leadership positions. To oversimplify, the way management and leadership gets done today in the most progressive organizations is very different from companies 10 or 20 years ago. The days of hardcore hierarchies are dying, and collaboration, connectors, and finding communal ways of working are all the rage, and women tend to be better at that. Companies who can't make that happen can't compete for future talent. Agreed. Agreed. And and you cannot invite women to the leadership circles if you cannot create safe environments for them. They won't stay. For instance, we know that there is a high quit rate for women who experience sexual harassment in the workforce at all levels of an organization. And Jane, in your report, you noted that notwithstanding that there are 73 million women in the workforce over the course of the past 15 years that they've been leaving the workforce. And I take your point that kids are a company's greatest competition. But did your research in that study or in any subsequent studies yield any data with respect to the role that the incidence of sexual harassment or sex discrimination has played in this discouraging reality? Um, Cindy Ann, we do not have data on how many women quit specifically due to having been sexually harassed, but we do know that 42% of women and 11% of men have said they have been sexually harassed, and that study was just done in the fall of 2017. So factoring this in with what was already several barriers to getting and keeping women in the workforce really compounds why women are falling out of corporate America today. Women and men want workplaces that are in business for societal good, whether that is their mission, their products, their services, or their culture. And we all want to work for exceptional workplaces, from the leaders that we follow to what we deliver. Most importantly, we want psychological safety so we can be engaged and be high performers. Point taken. What are your thoughts about whether greater gender equity in the workplace, and particularly in leadership, would increase the likelihood that men would be better allies and would be more likely to confront sexist behaviors when they occur? You know, we have not done specific research on this topic, but when I Google it and some of our researchers have dug into it a little bit more, it's definitely out there. And what it's saying is we just have to have more women in all industries, fields, and in the leadership ranks. Allow me to take our listeners, and you as well, Jane, back to October 1991, when the Senate hearings for the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court nomination were taking place. 
This was a mammoth moment for sexual misconduct in the workplace. And like many, I was absolutely riveted. In particular, I will never forget the day that Democratic Senator Howard Helfen demanded to know from Anita Hill, are you a scorned woman? <laughs> the degree of stigmatization to which Hill was subjected was truly staggering. And yet here we are 27 years later when hundreds of women and men are now being celebrated as the silence breakers. And, and last month at a speaking engagement, for instance, Anita Hill had said that she never believed that 1991 would be the end, which struck me as interesting. So what has changed between Helfen's unseemly inquiry back in 91, and Times 2017 Person of the Year. Jane, what's so different this time around? Why should we believe that 2018 is not just another moment? Well, a couple of things, Cindy Ann, and I hope, and I do think this is where social media is helping. It's giving women insight and strength that they're not alone. I do think it's a wake-up call for businesses and organizations from Hollywood to D.C. to small businesses that there must be respect from leaders to managers to peers that forces change. You know, we've had a couple clients actually mention that their reports are up significantly. So therefore, it begs the question, have there been more reports recently? Is, is it happening on a more frequent basis? Or is it because of the reporting tools and culture that people feel safe to report? So I think that we've, you know, with time, we're going to get to the bottom of, is there greater frequency than each of the organizations had in the past, or do we just have better systems for reporting it? I think that's a really good point, Jane, because there there is uh, something to be said about the numbers that you speak about, uh, particularly when you compare it to 1991, where you had Professor Hill literally uh, alone uh, as mm -hmm. she faced these these demands and these these questions. Uh, it's a very different time, and social media has a lot to do with this. So those are great points. So with sexual harassment now in the minds of so many business leaders, and from where I sit, I can certainly attest to the fact that there is a renewed focus on fortifying workplace policies, bolstering sexual harassment investigation protocols, and on providing widespread and mandatory harassment awareness training. All, all of this is happening, and all of this is absolutely helpful. It's true. But talk to us about some of the systemic changes that need to happen in corporate America for us to almost capitalize, for lack of a better word, on these events and to move the needle on the issue of creating exceptional workplaces for women. You know, as we uh, mentioned briefly early on in this podcast, first and foremost, it's really rooted in the culture. And, you know, sometimes the word culture becomes mystic and mysterious and fuzzy, and people wonder what that really means. Well, culture is defined by the norms, the policies, the actions, the accepted behaviors, the decisions, um, what's rewarded, and how people are or aren't held accountable. And all of that in a culture will create change. It's about literally retraining brains on what is acceptable at the business level. So, for example, I have a very flirtatious friend. She's very happily married, and she would never cross the line. But I've witnessed men who take it wrong. And she's just very strong and says, no, I was just joking. I was just flirting. Well, some guys don't know the difference, right or wrong. 
I've seen kind-hearted men who show interest in a woman's intellect and interests, and that woman assumes it's a hit in harassment. I personally have always been a hugger, and a few of us women were um, discussing that it makes some men very uncomfortable. So we'll either side hug or now we'll just not even <laughs> hug at all. Jane, you mentioned hugging. Let me interrupt you here. How might this movement change how women have to conduct business with men? For instance, I'm in the Carolinas. Do women in the South, for instance, now opt for greeting business colleagues with a handshake over hugs and air kisses? Should normal in-office meetings between the sexes be done with closed or open doors now? Should women mentees swap out cocktails and dinner for bagels and lattes? And before you laugh at me, and I've heard these kinds of emerging rules now being considered, do you think we have to carve out new guidelines for networking? You know, yes and no. I think that we need to help people be more sensitive, more empathetic, more individualized in terms of who the other person is and how well they know that other person. Um, I know that there are both men and women who think they're a lot closer to another human than the other human thinks they are to them. And that's when some of the offensive behavior occurs. So if in doubt, shake their hand. On the other hand, if you're really close to them, hug them. I mean, you've really got to get to the point where people begin to understand what that relationship is with the other human to begin to make some of those determinations. But really what's important, just like in diversity training, just like in inclusivity training, who are you with? Who is that other human? From a strengths and a weaknesses standpoint, you need to know who's on the other side of the proverbial table. You know, men and women need the literal training, just like compliance, competencies, ethics, or any other kind of training on how various things can be perceived based on our own upbringing and values. We need to get to the specifics of how people feel and what they see, and most importantly, we need to understand the unique differences in human strengths. Where one person um, is what we would call an includer, they want everybody as a part of their circle, they want everybody at the party or the event or the meeting, or maybe another one is full of woo, and when you have woo, you want everybody to like you. And so you're kind of invading their personal space, and you're right in front of them all the time. Well, let's just say that there's zero sexual harassment involved, but that person just bugs them. They just get a little too close. Some of those people can turn someone else off, when for the most part, those are beautiful, beautiful strengths. But every once in a while, someone else might see it as a weakness. What I'm you know, really trying to get at is that we need to get to the point that people are really thinking about how much does that person want to get to know me or is their intent to do harm? And we've really got to get back to where the intent is from the person that they're actually meeting with or working with. We can't assume that all intense, friendly people want to have sex, right? Uh, nor can we assume that all men are wolves or that, you know, all women are open to it or all women are going to say absolutely not. There are some of those nuances that humans need to determine, and workplaces have to start the dialogue to say where the start and stop is. So you are not an advocate of new rules. Well, I think we have to be careful here, or it could set women back even further if we have to implement what everyone's calling the Pence Rule. Jane, let me stop you. For the benefit of our listeners, what's the Pence Rule? Uh, Vice President Pence has said he will not go to dinner alone with any women unless his wife or someone else is there. I think that's a very respectful rule for him. 
But if all women accept that rule from meetings to travel to dinner, we're holding women back. Because that means men can go to dinner or have meetings alone, but women can't. All of a sudden, we're excluded from very important meetings. So I think we have to use common sense in addition to policies. If we're told we can't meet with men alone, but men can meet with men alone, we have a problem in terms Mm -hmm. of getting more women into leadership positions. So we really need to have discussions that make sense for business. Makes sense. Any guidelines? Well, when we're thinking about guidelines, maybe on an overall basis, relative to this entire conversation within the United States, it's very important that a leadership note comes out from either a CEO, a COO, or a CHRO that your company is aware of the uptick in sexual harassment claims across the country based on the media, and they need to restate their policy for reporting or any other guidelines that they have on sexual harassment, which any good company has guidelines on it already. Number two, they need to create a plan for team discussions on what constitutes harassment or the feeling of harassment. We need to get personal and ask people what they see or feel, but simultaneously help them begin to differentiate where it's just an odd, unique person, um, not necessarily someone who's creepy or criminal. Big difference. Number three, they need to assure there's training for new associates and really refreshers for veterans. And number four, they need to reiterate that reporting or asking is healthy and that an internal investigation can get to the bottom of a problem. Agreed. Now, Jane, I know that relationships have been central to your research. So now what? What about friendships between men and women as we look towards reforming organizational culture? Well, you know, if friendships are a part of your culture, as which for many organizations, rightfully so they are, we know that best friends at work and relationships actually drive all the most important key performance outcomes, and yet they're still very, very rare. We need to address how friendships play into these norms as it relates to sexual harassment. All of our research shows that best friends at work, regardless of gender, makes a huge difference from engagement to retention to safety. And actually, women need more of a social, open, transparent culture, including best friends at work, than men because they have better engagement and are more likely to stay at a job when they have best friends at work. However, and this is where it gets a little bit dicey, workplaces and their leaders get easily confused when the research shows humans want connections, relationships, and friendships, and yet we're saying those relationships can't cross the line on creepy. Mm -hmm. So we just need to be adults. We just need to say, where are we potentially offending someone? Because otherwise, you know, when you're in with a best friend, you can say almost anything, and that's healthy, and that's okay. So you have to know that when your best friend's not in the room and someone's observing you guys having a conversation or telling a joke, they could absolutely take it wrong. And that's where people need to be socially and situationally aware as to who else is in the room watching an interaction between best friends, because that can easily be taken wrong. Since we're talking about relationships, and I know we spoke about it a little earlier, you've done some research about where people are increasingly meeting their spouses, haven't you? Yes. Actually, you know, we have trending data that goes back to the 30s. And I think we started asking this question in the 40s or 50s. But, of course, um, more so in the past, it was very common for people to meet their spouses at work. And it still is still pretty high. It's ranged from, I want to say, 
17 to 30% over the decades. So there's always going to be some level of dancing and dating that still occurs. You know, I have a couple down the hallway that just got engaged in the last week. So we have to figure out that comfort level of where the other person will accept what that other person is saying or doing that will define and divide between consensual and creepy. All companies have to have a very clear reporting policy of who to report to and understand that once something's reported in a, in a negative way, it must be investigated. And I think the investigation word tends to scare some men and women, but we have to own that it's the right thing to do and we'll get to the bottom of what is the right thing to do based on whatever the situation was. Okay. Let's switch gears a little bit here, Jane. I often ponder about what tough choices organizations are going to have to make when weighing short-term financial interests with long-term financial interests in piercing the culture that prevents the achievement of true gender parity. So, for instance, how do you convince an organization to walk away from critical business partners who are engaging in sexually disrespectful or demeaning behaviors and prioritize the long-term intangibles like brand and improved retention and morale amongst women in the organization uh, or those outside of the organization who are closely watching them. Because Hollywood producers and media personalities are not the only ones who should be under a microscope in this new climate. Highly regarded producers in a host of industries have been getting what I call superstar passes for years. I know that from my own practice, number one sales associates, rainmaking law firm partners, and rock star doctor behaviors are constantly being excused because of the revenue they bring in. How do you respond to an organization's willingness to pay the price for some hurt feelings, as they may label it, to keep what they value as high revenue generators? You know, Cindy Ann, it's, it's such an important question. It's just absolutely critical. And I think it comes back to guardrails, and I think it comes back to moral courage. When managers and leaders literally have the moral courage to stand up to that type of bad behavior, to document it, to give warnings, to give timeouts, and to give whether it's one strike or three strikes based on the severity and what is occurring, it makes all the difference in the world. We have to come back to the fact that the best businesses and leaders do the right thing, and they do have moral courage to call time out on those types of what you call superstars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that starts with gender-diverse companies and teams, which means having more women in leadership, and it means men and women in leadership who stand up to that type of behavior. And you have to create the strategy from recruiting to development to promotions to flex schedules to really training in a culture of care and high performance that lends itself towards healthy working relationships. You know, we, we all want trust, we want transparency, and we want respect for each other as humans. And it really means ensuring and accounting for policies and education and reporting mechanisms on what is harassment and how it's eliminated in workplaces. You know, one other thought, we have a senior advisor at Gallup. His name is Dr. Bob Sutton. You may have heard of him. Um, he's written several books, and my favorite is actually entitled <laughs> The No Asshole Rule, The No A-Hole Rule, and he is just 
the kindness. I, I went to dinner with him two weeks ago, and he's a wonderful man that really talks through what it means and the damage that these types of people can do to an organization financially and brand-wise over a long period of time. That the yeah, short I know term, well. <laughs> oh, good, good. And the short term makes us think that they're the rock stars that bring in all the revenue, and yet the reality is their impact isn't just on the associates next to them or their patients, but it's also the suppliers. It's what the reputation becomes of the organization. There are so many things that surround those people that not accepting that behavior is what we all have to do as leaders. And it starts with moral courage to not accept that behavior. And as you know, in his book, he talks about the calculation of the costs that organizations have made that they're obviously willing to make. And it will be interesting to see in this emerging climate if they are going to continue to make those calculations and be willing to live with those costs. Absolutely. Jane, let me take you back to something that you said just a, a moment ago with respect to flex schedules. Flex schedules and family leave issues cannot be strictly marketed as a woman's value either, can it? Because our organizations are going to have to normalize or mainstream these types of policies by ensuring, for instance, that male job candidates are made aware of these policies by male hiring managers and that they can't micro-message when men or women avail themselves of such policies by raising a brow or asking them if they really think that's a smart move at this point in their career. That's part of the transformation of culture that we're talking about, isn't it? Well, here's the really good news is that we did a millennial report and a women's report in the last, let's say, 16 to 18 months. And millennials want all of that, men and women, as much as all women want that. So millennials and women make up 110 million out of 164 million in the U.S. workforce. And they are a driving force in creating change Again, not just for millennials, not just for women, but for men and women, and most importantly, for kids and our family and society. Because anymore, we are a culture that can work remotely. We are a culture that can have the flexibility. We can jump back online in the middle of the night should we need to. We can get up early and work and be done in time for the kids when they get out of school. There are so many options that businesses can work first and foremost around what a customer's need is and then back out how those associate schedules can be resourced to their strengths and that time needed for family and first and foremost clients, we can make it all work for families and really ultimately for the fabric of our society, which is so important long-term, um, not only to our country, but really to the entire world. Agreed. Absolutely. Let me switch to the dark side of the Me Too movement for a moment because the rebellious whisperings are already happening. And as ridiculous as what I'm about to say will sound to our savvy listeners, here it goes. Don't hire women. Don't hire women. What do you say to that as a solution to the crisis that we are now experiencing? Just don't hire them. It doesn't even go in my brain. It's insane. It's ludicrous. It makes zero sense to me. <laughs> whatsoever. You need them now more than ever. And do you feel that way with respect to the mentoring and the sponsoring and the promotion components? It's more this? important than ever. It's just um, for men, for women, it's more important than ever that 
there is a dialogue on what this means and not only for each of those individuals but for the organization. You know, one of my best mentors was a man in charge of research for decades, and he taught me that sex is the root of all evil and of all good. And as managers and leaders, we need to just keep a strong handle on the expectations for what is and isn't tolerated. On the flip side, I also worked with a man on a community committee who said men and women can't work together, otherwise you will know what will happen. To your point, he was alluding that if men and women work together, there will be sex, there will be affairs. Well, that's crazy. That would imply women should stay out of the workforce. That is not, nor should it ever happen. The reality is sex is a part of life. We need to train humans on what is acceptable and what is not. And I personally think it needs to go all the way back to junior high and high school because that's where some of those behaviors start that men and women never outgrow. And so the only way we can say this is what a professional work environment is, is to start at a much younger age. And I don't want to appear to be demonizing men. Plainly speaking, there are women gatekeepers that exist as well. Sorry, but to be fair, we have to go there. As we know, and there are certainly a great number of studies out there that indicate that when a woman feels that the path to leadership is so narrow that she can barely squeeze through herself, let alone try to bring others along, that complicates matters for creating the environments that you speak about. So what can women do to empower other women in this pivotal moment and, and, and getting away from this scarcity of resources mentality that is out there? You know, I think this one's always a little bit difficult for me. I'll be, I'll be blunt. I've grown up in a culture that has always been 49 to 51% women, and we have 45% women on our board. We've had women at leadership levels all throughout the organization and all throughout the globe. So personally, I have not experienced it. Having said that, I understand from studies, and I've witnessed it in other places. So I, I, I get it. I get that it's there. Mm-hmm. One of the times I experienced it from a distance, not in my job, was I went to a conference in San Diego. And while I was there, it's notorious for having 400 women and one man. And the one man is Warren Buffett. Well, he was sitting on stage, and they asked us to all go around the room and talk about um, our background, our experience, where we work, and where we went to school. So I said I went to the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. God is my witness. The woman next to me said, why would anyone ever go there? What's there? And I looked at her in shock, and thank God I was thinking fast that day, and I said, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Well, of course, I was pointing at Warren, the only man in the room. Shut her up, needless to say. Anyway, I went on through the conference, and I had never felt like such an outcast. It was like the junior high table where you can't find a place to sit, and all the women were just talking about themselves and bragging and bragging. I'm really more of a listener. So I called my husband, and I said, I've got to leave this conference early. I said, I I can't stand being here any longer. I feel like a Labrador retriever amongst a bunch of cheetahs, and I'm getting eaten alive. Well, anyway, I I left. I went home. Fast forward four years, and I'm on a zoo board, and we were touring a large zoo, and they brought out a baby cheetah, and they were holding the cheetah, and so the cheetah had been orphaned because his mother had died. And they were going through how the cheetah was being nursed and raised with a human bottle, And they also went on to say that the only other animals that can raise cheetahs are Labrador retrievers. Hmm. I was shocked. 
so Four years later. <laughs> the moral of the story, the moral of the story, though, is that we need labs and we need we need cheetahs. Yes. We have to have both types, but we've got to put guardrails on and we've got to have parameters in terms of what that means, not only to leadership, but to financial outcomes and to key performance indicators, because a lot of businesses wouldn't run without those cheetahs. We have to have them, but they need to know where their influence, persuasion, and outcomes and actions start and stop and where they really hurt cultures and where they're an advantage to cultures. So it gets real, you know, it's real convoluted, like we started this conversation, and very controversial um, in terms of the strengths of humans and how all that plays out in interaction to allowing more women into the workplace and ultimately to solving some of the bigger issues that are keeping women out of the workplace. Perfectly stated. Any closing thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners, Jane? Well, I think we just have to keep going back to teaching in the difference of humans and what their intents are, whether it's a man or a woman. You know, they do something criminal, like we've seen in the media. I mean, that is just unfathomable to me. If it's criminal, they have to, you know, go through the due process and and or go to jail. Um, Or are they jerks? Are they just saying something that's jerky? That still needs called out. I mean, to Dr. Bob Sutton's book, we need to figure out a mechanism for that as well. But there are also naive people, and there are also people who are just too nice and say anything, and they aren't harmful, and they aren't meaning to hit on someone or, you know, ask them out. And so we really have to look back at intent, and I guess that would be the most important thing. And we need leaders to have moral courage to stand up and have these conversations and to put the guardrails and the rules and the policies all while keeping the individualization and the intent in mind as to what's best for that person and ultimately for the organization and the clients and constituents that go to that organization. Leadership courage is absolutely going to be needed for the trials ahead, whether we are taking on the criminals, the naive perpetuators, or the jerks, as you put it. Right. But leadership courage is going to be key, isn't it, Jane? Absolutely. Yep. Moral courage. Incredibly insightful. Jane Miller, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Gallup Organization, thank you so much for joining me today to explore this topic. Absolutely. And thank you, Cindy Ann. I've enjoyed it, and I hope I can help in some way. If anyone would like to download the full report, it's on gallup.com under Women and Work and a Life Well Lived. Thank you, Jane. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. As always, thank you for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.